0: Alasdair, recording some things for his sister Mora on the 28th of October, 1993. I discovered an odd thing about my left foot when about to pull on a sock this morning. In the groove between the second and third toe, reckoning from the big toe, is a small gray pellet of chewing gum. I do not chew gum, "'or know or remember meeting anyone who does. "'I sometimes patter about this room in my dressing gown and bare feet, "'but I never go out of it, "'and nobody comes here nowadays except the one who cares for me, "'who is Zoe, I believe, and Hope. "'Zoe would never play such a sly wee disturbing trick "'as putting a sticky sweet between the toes of a sleeping man. Her tricks were all bonny and lavish.' I once came home to find that a friend had given her back money we had lent him. Money we had stopped expecting to get back, though we needed it for food and rent. Zoe had spent half of it on food all right. We had food enough to last a fortnight, but she had spent the rest on flowers. The bedroom floor was covered with vases, jugs, bowls, pans, basins, kettles, so full of irises, lilacs, and carnations that the bed seemed to float in a small lock, lomond of blue, purple, and crimson petals. The scent nearly knocked me out. I had to be angry. I saw the loving goodness in that gesture, but had I encouraged lavishness, we would have ended up homeless. She knew it, too. Once, when I chose to be lavish, she grew thoughtful, worried, then angry. She wanted me to be careful and mean so that she could be lavish, which does not explain how this chewing gum arrived between my toes. I do not believe in miracles. I believe the human mind can solve rationally any problem it recognizes and closely attends to. I decided not to finish dressing before I had solved this problem, though I usually earn my pocket money and the right to stay here by working on the problem of time travel. I dropped the left sock on the floor, zooe would pick it up, and from a sitting posture on the edge of the bed moved to a prone one on top of the quilt which I must remember to call a duvet. If I do not learn to use the new words people keep inventing, I will one day find I am talking a dead language. I decided to tackle the problem of the chewing gum by a strategy combining algebra, Euclidean geometry, and Baconian induction. But feeling slightly cold in my semmet and single sock, I first crept under the duvet and wrapped it round me because a snug body allows a clear mind. Given Me, who sometimes patter barefoot round this room. Pellet of chewing gum stuck to the foot of me. An unknown gum-chewer who is the source and prime mover of pellet. A room which me never leaves and unknown gum-chewer never enters. A world containing me, pellet, unknown gum-chewer, room, and other items and events. Required. To find the likeliest event or events which could move pellet from the mouth of unknown gum-chewer to the foot of me while preserving these conditions. 1. Me and unknown gum-chewer remain ignorant of each other. Two, me is ignorant of pellet before finding pellet between toes. Three, unknown gum-chewer is ignorant of pea's movements after it leaves him, but not while it leaves him. And chewing the gum only leaves a mouth by being swallowed or spat or removed by fingers and flicked into air or removed by fingers and attached to other item, all of which are conscious acts those who Construction! Yes, I was now ready and able to set out the problem in geometrical space-time. I needed no pencil, paper, ruler, or compasses. The decay of my organs and senses stops me doing or showing much to other people, but strengthens my ability to see things inside. When completely dead to the world, I expect to see it all perfectly. Without closing my eyes, I now visualize... A space which is the world, containing everything possible. One of them a square representing the room containing me, and outside the square the unknown gum and his pellet. Can I picture a single simple event, able to fire P for pellet from the world outside into the dark green mottled linoleum of this floor from which the pressure and warmth of my foot later detached it? I pictured one easily. Outside my window is an ash tree which looks insanely active, even when standing still. Three tall trunks diverge upward from the same root, and a few boughs or long branches fork from these inelegant curves but most of them grow straight for a yard or more then, as if turning a corner, bend abruptly up or down or sideways, then undulate, zigzag, spiral, turn steep new bends, or suddenly explode outwards into a lot of smaller branches, themselves as knotted and twisted as the tentacles of an arthritic squid. On the day I discovered the chewing gum, All these trunks, boughs, branches with their twigs and leaves were swaying, writhing, lashing about, and reminding me they were rooted in a space of grass too smooth to be called a field, too rough to be called a lawn. I seemed to remember an asphalt path between the tree and the window of this room, but nearer the window than the tree. I easily imagined a stout, sturdy man wearing a boiler suit, wellington boots, and a cloth cap who strides along that path chewing a piece of gum which gets so flavorless that he fixes it to the ball of his thumb near the tip bends his strong middle finger until the top edge of the nail touches the crease in the joint of his thumb. Then, using the thumb as a lock, he builds up muscular pressure in the finger until, seeing an open window just ahead, he mischievously aims his hand, unlocks his thumb, and, without pausing in his stride, flicks, slings, catapults the pellet through the window onto the floor of the room, remaining as ignorant of me as I of him at the moment.' But the window is never open, so I must now seek a more complex, though equally elegant, solution to this problem. Is now seek this problem? I seem to be conducting my investigation in the present tense, though I certainly began it in the past, and time travel is unending. And I am sorry that the continually shut nature of the window has made that stout man impossible. For a moment I thought of him as a friend. I used to ask the one who cares for me, uh, uh, not Zoe, the other one, to open this window on sunny days. But he or she always said, Sorry, Dad, no can do. It's against the rules. Why do you think we paid for air conditioning? I don't know why we paid for air conditioning. I hate it. I learned to hate it in the 1980s when I was famous. I must have been because people kept asking me how it felt to be famous. I always said, fine, thank you, the perquisites are useful. The only perquisites I can now recall is flying from airport to airport all over North America and sleeping in hotels and appearing on platforms in conference centers. The airports, hotels, and conference centers were very similar buildings, with the same kind of furniture and windows which could not be opened because of the air conditioning. The air on the airplanes was fresher, though I could not open windows in those either. The only openable windows I saw in America belonged to cars speeding from one building to another, and they would have poisoned me with exhaust fumes had I opened those windows, So I am used to breathing stale air, but it has damaged my memory. I do not know why people thought me famous and asked me all over America and why I went. It must have been a lie. When I was small and passionately wanted to tell my mother something, and suddenly found I could not remember what it was, she always said, it must have been a lie. Wait a minute. I remember something said by a man who introduced me to a big audience in Toronto or San Francisco or Quebec or Chicago or Montreal or Pittsburgh or Vancouver. The most humane, far-sighted, and lucid thinker the 20th century has known, he called me. Yes, yes. I traveled all over North America because I enjoyed the introductory speeches. This casts no light on the problem of the chewing gum. I now know that unknown gum could not flick or spit pea for pellet into this room. I am sure unknown gum did not swallow it. Because even if such a pellet could keep its color, adhesiveness, and integrity through a digestive tract, bowel gut, and sphincter, its position after that would make its entry into my room improbable, whether unknown gum defecated into a public sewage system or crapped behind hedge. The following construction shows the likeliest chain of events. Imagine a commonplace item called X in the world outside my room, and later within it, having been brought from there to here by... But the item itself will indicate who brought it, so visualize. A world where unknown gumchure and pellet and X... ...remain outside a square, which is my room containing me. How could X move from outside to in? Imagine that unknown gum-chewer gets rid of pellet... ...by casually sticking it onto X... ...which is carried into this room by Zoe... ...or by one of the other people who look after me... ...or by a visitor... But nobody has visited me for years. So the fame did not last. The problem has now been carried as near to a solution as this method allows. I love the deductive method. No wonder its union of Greek geometry and Islamic algebra has seduced nearly every continental thinker from Descartes to Levi Strauss. However, to identify X, I needed the inductive method the practical British approach devised by the two bacons and William of Ockham. I was making a list of everything in the room I could have trodden on when my attention was distracted by the queer behaviour of a chair I had known for years. It stands between my bed and the window, but nearer the window than my bed. I must describe how it usually appears before telling how it acted on the day I found the pellet. It is a low-light armchair with a wooden frame made not long after the Second World War when one money was more evenly spread. Materials were in short supply, extravagant use of them was thought wasteful and ugly. Yet this chair does not look cheap. The elegantly tapered curves of the legs, the modestly widening, welcoming curve of the arms, owe something to Japan and Scandinavian design as well as aeroplane design. The seat and back are not thickly upholstered, but so well supported that they feel perfectly comfortable. All the furniture Zoe owned looks and feels good. There was once another chair exactly like this one, and a sofa matching them. If people wanted a standard armchair, I would honestly propose this one, as James Watt proposed a healthy workhorse without defects, as the standard by which the power of artificial engines is moved or measured to this day. Or does that last sentence show I am living in the past? Have engineers stopped measuring the strength of engines in horsepower? Are horses as extinct as whales? Is the Watt no longer a unit of electrical force? Watt was an 18th century machinist from Greenock who invented the coal-fired water vapour engine. Has Rudolf Diesel's compression-fired oil vapour engine supplanted Watt's terminology as well as his machine's? Don't panic. I suspect this is a word problem, a quilt duvet problem, not destruction of Scottish achievement by German achievement problem. Unless I describe the usual colour of the chair, the oddity of its conduct a week ago cannot be described. The parts of the woodwork designed to be seen have been polished, stained and varnished to a medium chocolate colour that almost hides the grain. The upholstery is covered by a russet red fabric I found annoyingly bright before it faded. When in bed, I view the chair in profile, like the chair Whistler's mother sits on, and see a tall, narrow hole in the fabric of the back and the side, a hole through which at least 24 inches of pale, unpolished, unvarnished timber appear, like a bone seen through an open wound. This hole has not been or torn open, but shredded as by a cat's claws. Threads and shreds of fabric dangle down the edges all round it. In the years when I rummaged in cupboards, I found other evidence of a cat, a plastic feeding dish with fluffy printed on the sloping sides, and behind containers of marmite yeast extract and granny's tomato soup, a tin of whisker super meat, chicken and rabbit variety. Most sinister of all. Behind the long-lost matching sofa, I once saw a cardboard box more than two feet square with an arched hole like a door cut into one side, and craned over the sides and top a pattern suggesting brickwork with the words Cat Palace, Mogga Den, and Fluffy House. This writing was not in Zoe's hands. It suggested that before she helped me up from the pavement and brought me home here, she loved another human being as well as the cat. Somebody who enjoyed fishing. There was a wicker creel under the bed, an angling rod in the wardrobe, waders in the lobby press. I said nothing about these articles, and one day I came home and they had gone. I said nothing, because out of sight is out of mind if I wanted to be, nor did I mind Fluffy ripping up the chair. Cats invented themselves by clawing their way up and down tree trunks and scratching soil or grass over their excrement. Forbidding cats to scratch is like forbidding humans to cut their nails and hair. Also, the chair was not responding to Fluffy in the year I found the pellet. It was brightening and darkening. The dim russet fabric glowed and flickered, then leapt into dazzling vividness like when new but with a moving pattern of leaves dancing over it in a very irregular way. This pattern, dull red on bright russet, was dove grey on creamy ivory over the exposed timber. For half a minute the chair persisted in this way, then suddenly, like an exhausted dancer, slumped in two or three seconds back to its ordinary dull old colours. Had the chair been remembering leaves it had seen in earlier days... Glancing through the window, I noticed a remarkable coincidence. The leaves of the ash tree had the shapes and dancing movements of the pattern which had recently faded from the chair, and I saw another coincidence. Leaves, branches, and trunks were flickering, lashing, swaying in the same direction, and with the same turbulence as the ragged, whitish-gray clouds in the sky beyond. Clouds with shifting patches of blue and gleams of unpredictable sunlight. Without its underground roots, every part of that tree would have flown off with the clouds, which shows the infectious force of a strong example. Had the air between the tree and clouds been visible, I might have seen it rushing along too. For a moment I considered working out how the movements within the chair had been caused. People will pay a lot of money for objects that blaze and flicker, as television sets and games machines and public houses show but I am too old to venture into show business. It is enough for me to passively enjoy the play of natural coincidences and actively enjoy the play of inward speculation. These two plays led to my famous discovery. Of course they did. Einstein had died without establishing the unified field hypothesis. All the physicists had agreed the thing was impossible when I... A botanist proved that every part and particle of the universe reflects every other part and particle and every past and eventual possibility inherent in each part and particle. My dissertation, proving the identity of sense and motion in water lilies, also proved the identity of sense and motion everywhere. And it cleared away all the paradoxes in Newtonian gravitation by showing that Kepler as well as Einstein had been right all along. Look at a star. Astronomers will see it as a distant sun or nebula, but even a moth can see it as a body of light. We know it gives light because we live inside the radiance of the gift, live inside the star. That twinkling little item is the core or central pip of a radiant fruit containing every other star and galaxy. My discovery angered many clever people, For by proving that loneliness is a convenient form of ignorance, it left them nowhere to hide. Nonsense, roared the hearty pragmatists. The light, heat, sounds, etc. given out by a body are not parts of the body, they are its excrement. Some bodies fling useful shit at us, some fling the dangerous kind, so we need to identify the sources. The source you call a star is a mass of fissile material exuding beams essential to life and useful to navigators. And people with this self-centered view cannot be faulted. They want to be nothing but cockroaches in the larder of the universe, so have no interest in the rest of the palace. There was more dignity in the wrath of a great French scientist who was also a practicing Catholic, and so obsessed by the needless division between mind and body, so certain that only a god outside the universe could redeem what he thought its horrible nature, that he would not see the regenerative side of my discovery." The silence of these vast spaces appals me, he said, talking about the gaps between the stars. I told him these gaps were spaces between the bodies in a busy market where light was being exchanged so rapidly our eyes could not catch it. Imbecile, he cried, do you not know that the whole blazing star systems are receding from us faster than light can travel? and will collapse into black cinders without a single ray or thought from them, ever reaching the frozen star which was once our little world? I pointed out that while answering me, his own mind had overtaken these blazing systems, had survived their extinction and returned to our own extinct world, enlivening it with one ray of impossible light, dignifying it with an impossibly gloomy thought. He frowned and said, you are playing with words. Words are an expression of thought, not a physical force. I pointed out that spoken words, though perhaps unable to open a closed mind, were as physical a force as dawn sunbeams that open the petals of daisies. But he so gloried in the faith he needed to face his appalling universe that he muttered, solipsist, and turned his back on me. The Americans did not, or not at first, I expect they used me in propaganda for their space program, or space race, or whatever the advertisers called it, before the Russians made it pointless by stopping pretending to compete. Having solved the problem of the universe, I now needed to exercise my brain with smaller matters, like time travel, and where Zoe has been for the last two or three days, and between two toes, or... the case of the mysterious pellet. I cannot now say... if I am solving the last of these problems in the present, or remembering how I once solved it in the past, but the time came, or has come, when I made, or will make, a list of items brought recently into my room from the world outside. Food, cleaned clothes and towels, Newspapers and letters. Then I made, or will make, another list of items on the floor of the room, items my foot could have pattered across. The linoleum, a fringed rug, and things often dropped on these, like food, clothes, towels, newspapers and letters. Items common to both lists should then be considered one at a time with great care, for one of these must be item X and I have just remembered that letters and newspapers should be on neither list. Nobody has written to me for years, and I stopped taking papers during the last great miners' strike in the 1980s, when I saw that Britain had again become a financial oligarchy protected by the ancient fraud of a two-party electoral system. But the lists are not needed, because I now see the gum must have come from inside the sock I wore yesterday. A sock which, like all my clothes, is washed in a machine outside this room where the clothes of other people, one of them who must be the Unknown Gum Chewer, are also washed. Unknown Gum Chewer accidentally attached the p for pellet to a cardigan or other woolen article. Unknown Gum Chewer's helper, who is probably one of my helpers too, put it in the drum of a machine whose soapy solutions and hydraulic pressures dissolved most of the dirt, but only displaced pee for pellet from the car- from the cardigan to the toe of my sock while the sock was inside out. It's in variable state after I pull it off at night. Zoe, or whoever else looks after me, turns the clean socks the right way round at night before setting out a clean pair for me to put on next day. The fact that all my socks are grey like the pellet would prevent Zoe or the other one seeing and moving it. Eureka! I basked in the elegance of this solution for two or three happy and peaceful minutes. Since discovering the pellet, I had been rolling it idly between the ball of my right-hand thumb and forefinger. I was about to flick it into a pale-shaped metal waste bin near the bed when something in its soft plastic adhesiveness made me doubt if it was chewing gum at all. It was very like a more recent invention called blue-tack, first marketed in the 1970s, I think, as a means of attaching paper notices and light pictorial reproductions to surfaces without puncturing or staining the notices, reproductions, and surfaces. But there are no such things in my room. I don't need them. Zoe's chair in front of the window, the ash tree outside it, give me all the entertainment and food for thought I need. Or have I forgotten something? Look suspiciously, carefully, at all the nearby surfaces. Yes, there is something I forgot. Beside my bed is a small metal wardrobe with wheels of a kind I have never before seen outside hospitals and homes for the chronically ill and disabled. On a side of this, immediately opposite my face when I lie down, is a paper document fastened by blobs of blue tack at the two upper and the right hand lower corner. This letter has a conventionally regal heading and a signature at the foot scribbled by Charles King, number three. And the bit between signature and heading is very prettily printed or exquisitely typed and congratulates me on attaining my hundredth birthday. Damn! HELL! No, don't say fuck. Don't use fuck as a curse word. Remember what I wrote in that review of the 1928 edition of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Lawrence has restored to tender uses what should be the tenderest word in any language. The Glasgow Herald sacked me for writing that review. I had guts in 1928. Perhaps that was my finest hour. But this letter, which I tear down, crumple, and fling into the waste bin, proves three unpleasant facts. First, this is the 21st century. Second, Britain is still a damned and a blasted monarchy. Third, I have not seen Zoe lately or anybody else I know because she and they died in the decade after Fluffy died, nearly 25 years ago, or perhaps 30. I'm glad they left me Zoe's chair. It makes time travel easier.